Several of us went to Eagle Irie, a Baptist camp and conference center near Lynchburg earlier this month to, um, to learn, and we heard John Gordon, an author there, talking about the powerful changes that can be brought about simply through positive energy. He said that when we decide to adjust our negative attitudes to positive ones, not only does our own outlook improve, but it affects others too. He said that research shows that electromagnetic energy in our hearts, which can be measured, gets broadcast up to 10 feet away from us. That was an intriguing idea to me. That, you know, it's hard to comprehend that. And so I did a little bit more research on it. But the reason I I bring that in today is because when we hear interesting ideas, we generally want to learn more, which makes us very like the Athenians who Paul met on this, that we're told about in Acts 17. And so we'll talk about them in a minute, but first I want to jump almost 2,000 miles northwest of Athens. Not too far from Durham, England, is the site of a Roman fort, England, Roman fort, called Vindolanda. When I was on sabbatical several years ago, I, it was one of the stops on this tour, and I learned that, or maybe I learned it in Western Civ, I forgot that part, but I relearned that England was occupied from late in the first century through part of the fourth century by Rome. It was just an expansion of that holy Roman Empire. And so we were at this site, which continues to be excavated, where several earth, uh, I mean, several pillars, several square pillars have been unearthed. And one of them is dedicated to Jupiter. Another one is dedicated first to Jupiter and second to all the other gods. And the, the professor who was leading us said um, they wanted to cover all their bases. Well, not too far from where these pillars were was the foundation of a temple with the inscription to an unknown God. And I was just fascinated with that. And so, of course, like an arrow, my mind shot to this story that we have today in Acts 17, where Paul has encountered all of these altars in Athens. And most of them have names to whom they're dedicated, to Zeus or to Hera or to Aphrodite or to Athena. And yet here's one to an unknown God. So apparently the Greeks, too, wanted to cover all their bases. They were religious. There was no doubt about that. While Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy, then here in Athens, he notices that the city is full of idols. And as he continues to wait for his friends, he is telling the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. And some people don't like what he's saying, and yet others say, we want to hear more. 
And so they take him to the Areopagus and ask him to explain further. Well, the translators have given us this word Areopagus. It's not anything that we typically use, but it's, it's the combination of the two words Ares and hill. And so it was probably a hill dedicated to their god of war, Ares. Mars is another name for Ares, so we get Mars Hill College, Mars Hill Church, various those. So, so picture again, here's Paul with all these people who are interested in listening to what he has to say about this foreign deity. And so Paul introduces them to his Lord, the one, he says, who made the world and everything in it. The one. This God is different. There is only one Lord of heaven and earth, and this Lord does not live in shrines made by human hands, like all these other altars around the city. God is not served by human hands as if this God needed anything. For this God is the one who has given to all mortals life and breath and all things. Now, imagine you're an Athenian, a polytheistic Athenian, if you want the big word for it, who has gods for the various aspects of life. Hera as goddess of the family, Ares as the god of war, Athena the goddess of wisdom and the arts. And here's Paul talking about one god, Well, it's tempting to judge the Athenians, but we really can't judge them too harshly without turning the spotlight on ourselves and asking, how many gods do we have? Or another way to say it, what is of ultimate importance to us and how do we honor it? Is technology of ultimate importance? Last week we were talking in Sunday school about Apple and the iPad 2 having come out and the iPhone 5 coming out later this year. And MSNBC.com reports they compared MRIs of Apple fans' brains to those of people who call themselves very religious and found that Apple and religion light up the same part of the brain. This means that Apple triggers the same feelings and reactions as people, in people as religion. So what else might trigger the same feelings and reactions as religion? Sports? <laughs> Stepping on toes, I know. Some people say sports has replaced Christianity as the most popular religion in the United States. We can watch, hours, watch or play hours of sports each week, but hesitate to pray for more than a few minutes a day. What else might trigger the same feelings and reactions as religion? A cinnamon dolce frappuccino light? What's the ratio of what Americans spend on coffee versus what we spend on charity? I don't know. What else? Military power? 
On Memorial Day weekend, we honor those who have sacrificed their lives for our security. Money will buy us anything we want except internal peace. Church, church is not God and often turns people away from God. The Bible, we risk making the Bible our God as opposed to the one to whom it points who is so much bigger and more mysterious than the contents of the book. Even family and friends can tempt us toward greater devotion to them than the God who gave them to us. There is a hunger within us, a hunger we seek to satisfy. Paul says God created us in such a way that we would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Several centuries ago in the 1600s, Blaise Pascal wrote about an infinite abyss that humankind tries in vain to fill with everything around us, seeking in things that are not there the help we cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object In other words, by God himself. And yet we still grope through finite and mutable objects for fulfillment, for happiness, for meaning. We grope for anything to fulfill this built-in longing. If we run out of patience and perseverance to find it in God, we look elsewhere. Paul gives us hope. Paul connects the idea of one God as our creator with a quote familiar to the Athenians, which Paul brought out to them. Even the Greek poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Or another way to say it is, we too are of God's family. Jesus of Nazareth found satisfaction for his longing in one God, one God whom he called Father or Abba, the intimate term for daddy. We use the family metaphor still, speaking of each other as brothers and sisters in the faith. And we know that in healthy families, people take care of each other. And then there was another family. A man asked his friend, so you're not bothered anymore with relatives coming and staying? And the guy named Tom answered with satisfaction, I borrow money from the rich ones and lend it to the poor ones and none of them come back. Now, there are exceptions. But in general, turning away family is not proof of a healthy understanding of what it means to be God's offspring. In Jimmy Carter's memoir, An Hour Before Daylight, He talked about how tramps would come around their home in rural Georgia. It was 1938, he said, and nearly a quarter of the nation was unemployed, much of that due to the industrialization and the mechanization of equipment. A neighbor, Mrs. Bacon, said about these tramps, well, I'm thankful that they never come in my yard. And Carter writes, the next time we had some of the vagrant visitors, Mama asked why they had stopped at our house and not others. 
And after some hesitation, one of them said, Ma'am, we have a set of symbols that we use to show the attitude of each family along the road. The post on your mailbox is marked to say that you don't turn people away or mistreat us. And Carter continues, after they were gone, we went out and found some unobtrusive scratches. Mama told us not to change them. This is evidence that Miss Lillian, as we called President Carter's mother, knew that all people are siblings in Christ's family, in God's family, and we show our love for others in action. So let's go back to what you've heard sung this morning in Jesus' words from the Gospel of John. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You Know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. This love for Jesus will be shown by our actions. On Wednesday, after the downtown noonday service at Green Memorial Church, one of our church members, who was ahead of me in line, made and brought me strawberry shortcake for dessert. To me... That was God's love in action. It doesn't have to be big. It just has to be love in action. When we can depend on each other in hard times, without judgment, and with generosity of spirit, we are following Jesus' command. The problem is, I think, that most of us come from dysfunctional families. Our experiences there lead us to make mistakes and act out of habit or fear rather than with forethought, sensitivity, and love. But there's still hope. As Paul says, God indeed is not far from each of us, each one of us. Regardless of our weaknesses and failures, we are God's offspring, God's family. And the church, as we express forgiveness and hospitality and love, is the evidence of this in the world. We are God's family. Some years ago, psychiatrist Carl Menninger was seeking the cause of many of his patients' ills, And one day he called in his clinical staff and proceeded to unfold a staff for a a plan for developing within his clinic an atmosphere of creative love. Creative love. All patients were to be given large quantities of love. No unloving attitudes were to be displayed in the presence of the patients. And all nurses and doctors were to go about their work in and out of the various rooms with a loving attitude. At the end of six months, the time spent by patients in the clinic was cut. Do you want to guess by how much? 25%? Any other 
Thoughts? He gives more? 50%. The time that they spent there was cut in half because active love heals us. While we grope for God, we are unsatisfied. But we continue to grope because God has created us like that. We continue to search, we continue to seek, and even find. This act of love is what Jesus showed. Jesus, our brother in Christ, And if we too are his brothers and sisters, we can go and heal in his name. He did not leave us orphaned. He remains in us and with us through that powerful and mysterious presence of the Holy Spirit that guides us. And others will experience that as well as our heart broadcasts the love of Christ to those up to 10 feet away, maybe farther. The old pattern of sermons was three points in a poem and then a prayer, but I am going to end with a poem. John Greenleaf Whittier wrote this. A tender child of summer's three Seeking her little bed at night, paused on the dark stair timidly. Oh, mother, take my hand, said she, and then the dark will, be, will all be light. We older children grope our way from dark behind to dark before. And only when our hands we lay, dear Lord, in thine, the night is day and there is darkness nevermore. Reach downward to the sunless days wherein our guides are blind as we and faith is small and hope delays. Take thou the hands of prayer we raise and let us feel the light of thee. Let's pray. O Lord, we seek your light. Help us to find you in the darkness and in the light and to let that light then shine, beam through us so that others will feel the radiance and warmth of your love as well. Amen.